I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, hustlers. We know that this 2024, the entrepreneurial journey is filled with challenges. An often overlooked aspect is the time-consuming task of processing payroll and managing government requirements. And did you know that the average admin spends a whopping 50 hours per month dealing with just government compliance? That's time you could be spending on growing your business, or let's be honest, taking a well-deserved break. But fear not, we got a game changer for you, introducing Sprout Solutions and their tailored solutions for MSMEs called the Payroll Starter. With Sprout Solutions Payroll Starter, you can finally reclaim your time and get your life back on track. Say goodbye to the stress of remembering tax dates or worrying about missed payroll runs. This bundle is designed to make your life easier and your business more efficient. And here's the best part. The cost starts just at 5,000 pesos per month for businesses with up to 10 employees. Yep, you heard that right. That's just 5,000 pesos per month. So why spend another minute routing in payroll paperwork when Sprout can revolutionize the way you manage your payroll and government requirements? Take the first step towards a more efficient business today. Visit sprout.ph slash payroll starter monthly 5k. If you missed that, don't worry. We have it in the description box of this episode. So click that too. And again, big shout out to Sprout Solutions because your time is too valuable to be spent on paperwork. Reclaim it with their payroll starter. Now let's begin this episode. The Hustle Share Podcast is brought to you by PDAX. PDAX is a homegrown cryptocurrency exchange that offers the best rates among local cryptocurrency exchanges. Download the PDAX app now on the Google Play Store, App Store, or Huawei App Gallery. Start trading Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other cryptocurrencies for as low as 50 pesos by signing up on podlink.co slash hustleshare PDAX. Also powered by Podmachine, the simplest way to grow and edit your podcast. Sign up now at podmachine.com and use the code HUSTLESHARE to get one free edit. I see a lot of female founders like say no before they even try um, because like pattern matching is real. Like you look at who are the successful people, you look at one generation above you, what, how many female founders there are. Welcome to HUSTLESHARE. The podcast that features the daily grinds of unique hustlers around the world to show not our differences, but that our hustles are very much alike. Now here's your host, Ronster Beitiong. Welcome to the latest episode of the Share Podcast. We finally got the girls. <laughs> There's one thing that I'm very, very proud of. Right? Every single company that have been to YC from the Philippines... I've interviewed except one. This is my time stone right here, all right? In the gauntlet of all YC Filipino companies. Finally, I get my final stone to create the whole infinity gauntlet. And again, without further ado, let's welcome to the show Camille Ang and Zhao Wen Tang of Hive Hub. 
the show, girls. How are you? Good. I still remember this was your first line when we first met in one of the startup events. <laughs> I am trying to be Thanos. So far, I now have it all. I will snap everyone into YC Oblivion. Just kidding. <laughs> Again, welcome to the show. I've been wanting to have you guys to join, but you've been the hardest to reach until I bumped into you into the Send It event. Shout out Send It again for inviting us over to that event. We're very, very happy to be here. But again, I need to ask you, girls, the million dollar question. Girls, what's your hustle? Okay, so we do Hive Health. Hive Health provides higher value, easier to use health plans for small and medium businesses in the Philippines. So we do this through our simplified digital platform, care coordination, and dynamic risk underwriting. That is such a pro answer. I love that. Okay. And again, Hive Health has been part of last year's YC batch. I've had the newest one also, Shipmates, back when before we they were even Shipmates. And I still remember having Josh in Devo. In the studio, this literal studio that I'm in uh, back then. So I'm still okay with the gauntlet. Uh, let's see. We'll we can catch up with Josh and Devo soon. But girls, I need you to buckle up real quick. Because before we even talk about Hive Health and the amazing stuff you do, we need to understand your origin story. So I need you to buckle up. This is a seven-seater because we're going to have to ride the Hustle Share Time Machine. Let's do it. All the way to Ivy League territory. Alrighty. Okay. So, yeah, I'm very, very curious because Camila and Jao and I've been really doing a little bit of background research because at least I want to have context I have had on the show. So, again, first thing I see is that you guys are both Ivy Leaguers. Okay. So, I was like, what the fuck? That is amazing. Right. And I want to start first before we even talk about your experience in Harvard and all in Stanford and. Yeah, both Harvard. I want to understand first your origin stories growing up. How did you guys get into tech or at least hustling in business? Was there any influence growing up? I'll start with you, Jawen. Am I pronouncing this correct? Is it Jawen? Jawen? I don't want to butcher any name. No, thanks for asking. It's it's Jawen. Jawen. Okay, got it. Only unless you speak Chinese, then it's Jawen. Okay, got it. Yeah, but for for me, I actually don't come from a family with a lot of business background. And so I'm, for me, it's really from my upbringing as a first generation um, immigrant to the US. So I was born in China and moved to the States when I was young. And so I think a lot of my hustling was watching my parents do, I think, the ultimate hustle, which is uproot their entire lives as adults, move with a young, probably mischievous kid to a new country where Right. They didn't really speak the language and watch them build a middle class upbringing for for myself and for my younger brother. And I think that's where a lot of my motivation for paying forward the opportunities um, that I've gotten in life to to really now see if we can do, expand access to really enabling other people to live the kind of lives that they want to live. And healthcare is such a key part of enabling that. That is amazing. Now I want to just uh, ask real quick. Because I've I've heard this from a lot of Asian Americans growing up, first generation, second generation, third generation, that there are stereotypes. There's a bamboo ceiling of some sort. But sometimes that also starts at home, especially from Asian parents that are very, very, say, obsessed with meritocracy, right? And how you are, okay, you need to be an engineer and, you know, they stereotype you. Was there any such pressure when you you grew up in the States? I think my parents were pretty, I think my parents were actually 
pretty odd and an outlier in that sense. I didn't have tiger parents, like helicopter parents. I credit that to a lot of my a lot of my exploration career-wise. I think they wanted me to make sure that I can support myself and do something that I believe in and that I enjoy doing. And those were the only two criteria. So number one is having wow. to you know, support myself and not be financially dependent on other people. And then after that, it's a free for all. Okay. Now let's talk about school. So correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm just literally basing it off of your LinkedIn. Which came first? So you you did obviously Columbia. Oh my God. Like I can even just imagine what it takes to get into these prestigious schools. But walk me through, uh, is it Columbia that went that you went through first or... Uh... Yeah, I did Columbia in undergrad, studied economics and political science there. So that's a mouthful. <laughs> All I can see, like, oh, yeah, Philippines are from UST, La Salle, whatever. But we're talking about the best of the best in the world. Just, just, and I like talking and asking people about this for especially their experience because, again, there's, first of all, you don't get to meet a lot of people from this side of the world that have been to, to schools like this. What was that like? doing Columbia and then eventually going Stanford and Harvard. And I think you guys met in Harvard. Correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah, let's, right. let's start first with your origin story. Hustling in the Ivy League before y'all came up and met each other in Harvard. What was that like? Yeah, Columbia was really incredible and in in eye-opening in the sense that I, so you can imagine I'm transplant to Rhode Island, grew up in the smallest state in the U.S., very suburban. And then all of a sudden I'm in New York City. And I think Columbia was really a place where I got to explore and open my eyes about what is beyond my borders, beyond you know the confines of a small community or even within a state in the U.S. And that's where I first learned about development economics. First time I actually traveled outside of the U.S., Wow. Yeah. So it was a lot of like I think exploring a lot of student, the typical college experience, a lot of student activities and clubs. Uh, actually, funny enough, I wasn't actually involved in the entrepreneurship club back in college, mm. really around the Asian American community advocacy and Mao Yuan. I was a huge Mao Yuan nerd in, in college. Wow. That's amazing. But last question before we go to Camille, I want to understand real quick. Was there, during this process of going to Columbia, and again, you mentioned you weren't into entrepreneurship yet, was there a chip on your shoulder? Because again, we all know that sometimes also the parents of immigrants and children of immigrants have that chip in their shoulder that, again, they want to have a better life because, again, U.S. is perceived as a land of opportunity. Eh, it's easier said than done to thrive in there, but majority of the time, people come there to hustle and you know uh, live the American dream. Was there a chip on your shoulder growing up, going through all these, uh, you know, great schools and studying hard? Yeah, I think for me, it was it's a chip or yeah, definitely there's a lot of self-imposed pressure to be a maximizer, to maximize the opportunities that have be part of X many clubs or do X, Y, Z. I do think in college, the mindset was there was a very predefined version of success to do, you know, consulting you know, in these predefined tracks. And mm-hmm. I think me back in college, didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to just make the most of the, the opportunities that I had. And what I was aware of back then was uh, management consulting. And actually that's where I um, got ex- first exposed to FinTech and a lot of like mm-hmm. science methods. And I really don't regret doing consulting before I tried entrepreneurship. So I'm a big believer that I think all of our experiences are cumulative. 
But I do think it did take a lot of exploring for me to then kind of step back and realize like, what is my North Star and what is it that I want to like ho- focus in on? So, yeah, I think the pressure was to make sure I covered a lot of ground and try a lot of different things. So you're looking at my LinkedIn, that's probably why it's a lot of very, very diverse uh, experiences that are that's now- amazing. Uh, again, amazing journey. And again, no wonder you guys try, but okay, I'll go to the other side. But before we start, let me just express gratitude real quick because uh, it wasn't a rumor. Yeah, I was just at all. I was uh, with my founder friends last week. His name is Dexter Ligot Gordon of Swarm, formerly of Caliber. He said that, you know what? There's this an amazing YC founder right now who you you need to look out for. And she wrote, the TNVS law. <laughs> I'm like, what? So okay, you guys, part of the team when that. No, moved. no, 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 no. She said she wrote, <laughs> she wrote the TNVS laws. If you guys are not familiar with the TNVS law, the reason why it's so much easier for you guys to book fucking cars in this country using Grab back then when there was Uber, especially during those years where you know it was sort of like in a gray area because people, the government didn't understand how to. Classify that. We owe it to this girl. Okay, so let's just give roses where roses are due to Camille. She wrote that law. So, okay, now we we are on the right path. So, Camille, amazing job. Thank you. But at least now we can book freaking cars without worrying <laughs> about being pulled over by some random dude as well. But let's now start with your origin story. Ika. Okay, you're in Ika. Wow. Then you're I'm not sure where you pulled that, but wow. I, <laughs> again, I am a professional stalker. <laughs> <laughs> well, walk me through growing up. Again, all girls school, Chinese upbringing. Was there any exposure to entrepreneurship here while you were growing up? Yeah, I think first um, I was part of a team. I'm not the one who passed that the law. Is, not passed <laughs> the law, but you wrote the damn law according to Dexter. There you go. But yeah, um, in terms of my first exposure to entrepreneurship, it was really growing up in a community of family businesses, okay. um, especially being in Ika, seeing how everyone hustled and how how much impact it can bring. So I think that's when I told myself in the long term, I do want to create an impactful business. And when I went to undergrad, I got involved in the social entrepreneurship side of Gawit Kalinga, heavily involved there. Wow, okay. Yeah, it's giving me flashbacks. (laughs) That's what this podcast does, okay? That's why we go to the time machine, all right? We go back. With the sound effects. Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. What did GK teach you? Because I remember having the daughter, the founder of GK, Anna Malotta Wilk, who told us that it was such a formative experience and really understanding what the, the plight of normal Filipinos doing that volunteerism work that's really create impacts communities. What was that like for you? Yeah, I think that was the first time I saw that it's possible for business to solve social needs directly. I think growing up, a lot of people think that it's you build a big big business, um, employ people, and then give back in terms of philanthropy later. That was the only model I knew. Right. Obviously, like these businesses also provide a certain need, but then GK was targeting the need first before they built their businesses. Right. And I was very inspired by that. But after that, I was looking for something with scale. I remember I went to the Ateneo Immersion program 
and saw how bad infrastructure was in the Philippines, really crafted my entire career path in terms of public-private partnerships. So after graduation, did public-private partnerships with McKinsey. It's a consulting firm for a short stint. And then um, an undersecretary from government stole me. Stole you? What <laughs> no, a nice thing to join to government for two months. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, two months now. I was like, okay, I want to see the pain points. But when I got there, I really realized how government is a tool to create structural change. So work in the transport side, my first project was actually the Cebu, Mactan Cebu Airport. And I was wow. like, wow. Because <laughs> wow. I remember seeing, going to the office and seeing so many feasibility studies in the shelf, but that was never done. But it was yes. like a time in Philippine history where, hey, I'm a fresh grad who knows nothing. You thought you knew nothing, but you were not <laughs> Jon Snow. Okay, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, wow, like, because of this public-private partnership framework, so many projects were done, and these are projects that solve needs that the government was supposed to do. But because the government and business came together, we were able to do something much bigger. Correct. That project is literally just one of many PPP projects, especially two administrations ago, right? That, that's where it started out, you know, your Skyway Shade Tree. Everything that you see thought that's technically build, build, build was technically done prior to that. I just, I'm just fact-checking these things because sometimes, <laughs> you know, it can get lost in translation. Like, oh my God, thank you to the administration. And by the way, you don't owe anything. You, we don't owe this to our government. We don't owe a debt of gratitude because this is is why they're supposed to be there anyway. They charge you taxes so that they can create infrastructure or any type of stuff. This is what we voted them for. We don't owe them shit, right? And the beauty of it is now you have private excellence that comes in and it gets things faster, done faster. Of course, there's still some, you know, uh, things that you have to overcome that that's systematically wrong in there. But in the grand scheme of things, it's faster. Sorry, I, I'm just passionate about this because we had to put facts in here. Right. Where if there's some people that we need to put gratitude for, it's people who are in the private sector that actually got this done. Because if it was just pure government, man, it's still going to be a different thing. But OK, I'll just jump back the real quick. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. I just wanted to double down on your point. I think like from the private sector, sometimes people look at people in the corporate as like, oh, it's evil corporate. But that actually like it does a lot. And yeah. that's the reason also why I went to private equity for most of my career to understand PE. the private sector. Okay. Before we talk about PE later, because I lo- I literally just learned about PE when I studied how to be a VC a few months ago, but I'll just go back to also Jawen. Because there's one thing that is also a common denominator between two of you guys is that, again, you sort of work in government, but holy shit, Jawen's experience is holy. Mo- it's amazing. So you've done IMF, <laughs> World Bank, and the United Nations. I have never, I've never met anyone who's worked for those amazing institutions around the world, and again, literally ticked all those boxes. What was that? That's like real quickly. Um, what was it like working in the United Nations, the World Bank, and IMF, and what did that teach you, Joanne? Those were all not planned. I think that's one thing that we want to convey is that you know what you see on LinkedIn or resume might look. Uh, intimidating or or fancy, but it really was. I think for us, we've very much been driven by like what we're interested in, like being yeah. very much North Star mission first. So, wasn't ticking a box or planning it, but 
from I think similar to Camille, like I wanted the experience of understanding how institutions work. Mm. We all know about World Bank, IMF, World UN because they are such large players in the development space and right. facilitating public-private partnerships. So was, I would say the, the IMF and World Bank were more on the research side. So that was really around like data science and emerging markets, thinking about digital development. The UN mm-hmm. was interesting. I was in the internal strategy group for the secretary. Mm-hmm. So that was much more like operational thinking, looking at a very bird's eye view, thinking about the interconnections across nations and, yeah. and thinking beyond just like the economic side. That's mm-hmm. what our the, the Harvard program we were in. It was also thinking about like, real issues around like natural disasters and crisis management. And it, I think it helped me think a lot more like interdisciplinarily and wow. at multi-levels of how do we interact and what are the stakeholders you have to bring around the table. Right. And again, that's common now. Now that, that sets the precedent here. You've been in similar situations from the Philippines here, PPP, but like global things. You've seen how, again, institutions work. Sometimes the bureaucracy that involves uh, that the, the revolves around in it, but overall the goal is to bring good to the world, and that's where I believe in. Because by default, those institutions are built to really solve problems, not to just make red tape or make things super complicated and whatnot. All right, now before we take our last break, let me just ask Camille one quick question. So you mentioned that you also was uh, uh, working in PE at the the Macquarie Group. So one thing that I've learned, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is just me being an idiot and being a naive uh, guy, is that I thought before PE and VC are very similar. But to an oversimplified version that I've learned when I studied in Insignia Ventures Academy, definitely not not uh, your Harvards of the world, but just how I gave me an understanding of how VCs look at deals at startups, a PE the multiple that they look at, they're happy to have a three to five X multiple of an exit, but the check sizes are holy shit, like a $20 million check as, as a baseline. Where in VC is high risk, high reward. They're looking for a hundred X multiple, lower check, but super high risk. Is that correct or an oversimplified version? Please educate me. I'm just being an idiot. I just want to understand from someone who worked in PE, especially in Macquarie, what type of deals were you guys looking at and what were you guys looking to fund? Yeah, I think broadly that's correct. Uh, Macquarie private equity was specifically um, focused on infrastructure, real estate, public-private partnerships. It was interesting because that was the first time I also got exposed to private equity and the first time that the country was ever investment grade enough for private equity firms to look at the Philippines. So it was like... An oh, interesting- those were the days we're back to the dump. We're, we're, down- <laughs> we're back down in hell again. But back then, no, we were we were investment grade. My okay. We are still. And we I are still. Okay, perfect. Looking at, at the okay. Philippines, um, I was actually surprised being abroad and everyone, non-Filipinos even, have been looking at the Philippines for opportunity for impact and um, creating businesses. But to your question, I think broadly speaking, that's correct. Most of the time, like VCs look at earlier stage companies. So it's about the team, yep. um, what the idea is, what the, how big the market is. On private equity side, it's a lot of things that are all like businesses that are already built. Yep. Um, either secondary, it's a resale, or you're building it from scratch, but then, you know, like a solar plant, like, yes. you know, business model works already. Mm-hmm. And I think both serve uh, an important part of the economy. Right. And 
they're generally in the same bucket. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's just it, if you just sum it up, the main difference is just risk appetite and check size on how they look at it. Because I, I looked around, it's like holy shit! I thought all the deals that say the Sunicorns got here in the Philippines, I call them Sunicorns because they're about to be unicorns or not. They're quite Series B, Series C. I thought all the deals were all BC deals. Apparently, they're all not. Some of the guys raised PE, and it requires a certain level of threshold for you to raise PE money because first of all, no PE will touch you if you're in the red. Correct me if I'm wrong, right? Because you're, you're trying to scale. That's growth money already. If you're in the red, if you're burning cash, VC is your only way. All right. Uh, wow. I, I learned something new. I got it correctly. <laughs> that is amazing. All right, Now let's take our first break. And when we come back, let's now talk about Harvard and how you guys met and all the way to how you created Hive Health. But let's talk about that more after the break. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus. dot com slash acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Hey guys, I have a very very exciting opportunity I want to share with you guys. If you're a B two B startup founder, listen up. Your ticket to growth is here. Introducing Impact Twenty Four, the Philippines' largest B two B SaaS challenge. Calling all startups in their pre-launch, pre-seed, or seed stages. This is your chance to accelerate their growth. Submit your pitch to Impact Twenty Four and get ready for a ten-week intensive program to elevate your solution. What's in it for you? How about? Up to five hundred thousand pesos in MVP project support, exclusive credits from industry partners, personalized mentoring, and a shot to pitch at SASCon PH, the country's biggest SAS conference this April. But yo, you gotta hurry up because submissions close on January twenty six, twenty twenty four already. Don't miss out on this opportunity to take your startup to new heights. Apply now at saschallenge.ph. That's sasschallenge.ph, and good luck, and I'll see you guys in Impact Twenty Four. And we're back from the break. We are still with the amazing girls. Oh my god, I've never seen such a team. Now I understand why they got to YC. Just looking at it in paper, I'm like, holy shit, these guys, these guys are amazing. But let's now talk about how you guys met. All right. So again, had amazing such paths separately. But let's talk about Harvard MBA. How did you guys meet there? And walk me through how you eventually thought of doing Hive Health. Yeah. So we actually met at the admit weekends of our various dual degree programs. We we're trying to decide mm-hmm. what schools to go to. And so we both decided to do the Development Economics MPA ID program at the Harvard Kennedy School. And we actually became friends a lot longer than 
before we actually decided to do the startup. Wow. And I think we just really bonded because as as we just discussed, and I think we had somewhat parallel experiences around wanting to do more public-private partnerships. And we both came to grad school with the goal of doing something entrepreneurial, something mission-driven and solving a critical emerging market issue. That's great. So you guys were friends. You had similar, again, I think it was fit like a glove. You had similar background. When did the idea of Hive Health come? This is pre-YC or you, you, you did this during YC already? Yeah, this was definitely pre-YFC, um, right in the middle of COVID okay. chaos. In there you Cambridge. go. <laughs> and we didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we wanted, I mean, we both came to grad school to create a mission-driven venture for emerging markets. And COVID really opened our eyes to mm-hmm. a lot of that. We chose the space of Hive Health because both of us came from really backgrounds where any health shock can wipe out one's savings here in the Philippines, you know, in China, even in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And personally, from my own experience, I have had a lot of family, friends, colleagues who would, you won't hear it in public, but then because of a health shock, it would like really cause strain in the family, get them into debt. Um, wipe out their savings. And on a personal level, I've actually done this myself. For my second mom, Mayaya, when she got breast cancer, um, it was already stressful for all of us. And then I had to go through all the paperwork of claiming insurance and it was terrible. Not fun. Yeah. And yeah, I can only imagine other people who can't pay out of pocket for what's not there is going through all this hassle and you don't know anyone to ask the go to to ask like what the process should be to be fully covered for your health shock. And yeah, I think that's the genesis of it. And we saw the big gap from the Philippines versus the rest of the world in terms of how much healthcare innovation can still happen here. Um, mm. Being in Boston, the healthcare capital of the world, yeah. um, I think that difference was very stark. Can you just paint that picture? Because you said that there is a wide chasm that we're talking about of how the status quo is here in the Philippines versus status quo of how it's supposed to be in the world. Because I understand, right? Coming from experience, there's no shortage of people who's trying to educate people to invest in their futures through insurance. The problem is when it's being sold as an investment vehicle plus insurance, insurance comes Again, the last versus investment first. Where in reality, your primary goal should be really, it's inevitable, right? You know, everybody will have to go through a health crisis at one point. It's not a if, it's a when, right? And right now, I'm, I'm sort of like not in the thick of it. I'm starting to feel shit that I've never felt before in my body. Like, oh, okay, this hurts. I'm <laughs> what this works. And I would be totally broke. If I didn't have at least HMO from my company, I'm fortunate I have that ability and my, my family's covered. But how many Filipinos don't have that luxury, right? Especially if it's coming from, you know, a lesser known institution. And again, claims are a pain in the ass. But before we talk about that, how different is it? How wide is the chasm? Can I'll you let Alan yeah. go for it since I still remember when she asked me, like, wait, this is how insurance works in the Philippines? Yes. I was like, yeah, isn't it how it should be? Correct. <laughs> okay, I'll let John go for that. Yeah, we, and 
this is we're excited about this question because we spent a lot of time studying it on the academic side too. Like this is what we wrote our master's thesis on. Mm-hmm. And so we think about healthcare coverage in, in three pillars. There's what is actually the population covered, okay. what medical services are covered, and then the financial coverage. And so if you look at it from a population perspective, Philippines is really interesting in that there is in, in theory universal health care in the sense that there's a national payer. I think that's mm-hmm. like a very interesting structure. Uh, yeah, Phil Health. And before Phil Health. Uh, before they somebody sold billions of pesos. <laughs> oh from an institution, from a structural perspective, I think that actually, you know, from like the different frameworks we looked at, having a national payer, I think there is a lot of opportunity to to build on that. But as we know from Phil Health, it's really focused on inpatient coverage instead of outpatient, and so yeah. a lot of the preventive care, a lot of the primary care that you need isn't covered yet through PhilHealth. I know there's UHC implementation and that's exciting, but from a services perspective, it's quite limited to, to inpatient care and there are caps. Yes. And the financial coverage, and we've done a lot of research on this and you know, over 50% of healthcare costs in the Philippines are paid out of pocket. That's 50 yes. episodes. And yes. a lot of it is because outpatient care, medicines, a lot of things that for me growing up in the US felt like fundamental core part essential parts of a healthcare plan weren't covered and additionally the way that insurance is structured here it's everything has a maximum benefit liability cap or annual limit cap whereas if you think about it insurance is supposed to insure you for the the unexpected and it should be it should cover things beyond a certain amount so the the way that we're trying to change that through hive is doing it incrementally since we know that healthcare is super complicated and you can't you can't change it overnight, but it's really along these three dimensions. And then we added a fourth dimension. So it's around increasing the population covered. So less than 10% of Filipinos have access to private healthcare like HMOs. So can we expand that to SME, their fam- the dependents of employees? That's around wow. population. And services, it's covering things like preventive mental health, uh, medicine, re- medicine um, and outpatient care. Uh, and then financially, yeah, it's, we're trying to be super sula in our plans and making it more value for money care uh, so that, you know, that every peso that you're spending or that the employer is spending, it's going towards actually taking care of the the members. And then the fourth dimension is around accessibility. Yeah. You can have the first three, but if the technology and the usability is not there, then it's then that's, that becomes a barrier to actually enabling someone to use their health plan. You haven't even told me the product yet. I'm already sold. Right? <laughs> it's like, where do I, where do I throw my money? I'm trying to freaking show. But that's that's kind of how we thought about it from like a macro systems perspective. Right. You know, if we're going to spend all this time, all these late nights hustling on our venture, we wanted it to be something that at least had the potential to chip away or be incremental to systems change. No, that's true. And and that said, if you really look at it, there's a really massive problem that we see because status quo doesn't work. Or if it does, it only serves a few. And if it does serve, again, you're right, there's a cap, right? And when you're sick, you don't really go, wait, I can only get sick to this level because beyond this, I, I'm not covered. So it's a double whammy when it happens because all of a sudden, the first thing that you should be really thinking about is how to get better. But as those things stockpile, that's why if you look into 
like general hospitals where like the PGHs in the world and whatnot. The best doctors are there, but also most of the people there are not covered by anything. And that they resort to, you know, charity sometimes just to get there. I don't know if you've ever gotten the chance to check out PCSO. Yeah, I actually gone through that as well. <laughs> Dude. It's so heartbreaking just to be able to get a little bit more help. You're already sick and you see all these people and you feel like it's not the best environment out there. It's hot. It's in the middle of nowhere. Just to be able to get a little bit of help or aid. It's just dehumanizing. That's how I would describe it. But how did you now see that problem and literally decide to create a startup around it? So as I mentioned, I was in the middle of the pandemic. I think it was summer and we were ideating on actually a multiple emerging market issues. And this is where I think of our third iteration. And there was a Stanford startup competition where 5,000 applicants um, were there. And we just like, well, let's try it. Why not? It's um, idea stage anyway. We were stuck in our rooms. First, that was the first all-nighter we pulled for us creating wow. our pitch video and the little presentation for for the Stanford Embark. Yeah, the funny thing is we changed ideas. It was a three-month program or yeah. a summer-long program. We changed ideas. I think a week before the presentation. Wow. <laughs> so we're like, whatever. Very, let's just try. This it was is reminiscent of Bay Mongo's journey. I think Francis pitched in last minute to apply in YC. <laughs> And then he got in and every, everything else, everybody else followed after that. But wh- how did that happen one week prior? Yeah. And we pitched and they said like, oh, you were, um, they only choose like top 11, I think. Um, okay. And we were part of it. We were showcased. We're like, what happened? It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, what did you guys put in there? Because um, you, you can't be making that cut. It's not a fluke. You must have said something great and you must have done something amazing for you to make the cut. What, what do you think was it? I think the problem was real, right? We touched a bit about it, but we can go on the whole day about No, we can. We have the whole day. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, um, yeah. Yeah. And the opportunity is real as well. Like Philippines, we're a rising middle class. COVID is creating more digitization. COVID is also creating a uh, better awareness for the need for quality health plans. Mm-hmm. And it was the why now. It was a sliver in time where actually like a venture can create tremendous impact, but also like a tremendous um, economic value. And now when that happened, all right, you got in, when did it start becoming real? Right, all right, we have something here. Because a lot of people would pitch, but there's a big also there's a big gap between pitch or wanting we're becoming a entrepreneur to becoming an entrepreneur right and yeah. when you make that jump there's no turning back how did you guys make that jump and say all right let's do this shit there was a very specific week in april 2021 where okay. it's very real uh, yeah so like after the after we got the first stanford showcase we're like okay let's do some more customer discovery do a lot of interviewing prototyping and we ended up applying to the the Harvard Business School new venture competition. So this is the what? competition at school. I was a fan girl because I knew that that was a competition that launched Anthony Tan's company Grab. Yep. And it was called My Tech Taxi that time. My it was, taxi. and they were the only Southeast Asian company that I knew of um, that won that global competition. And right. 
because of that, he was able to launch Grab. So that was like, I was a fangirl to even be qualified to join that competition. But wow. as our mantra is like, just try. There you <laughs> go. Just try. Well, okay, hopefully we can make the top 10. And then it's like, why don't you make the top 10? It's like, oh, hopefully we can make the top four. So our, the, the company... Just like the Miss Universe. Like, okay, if I make the cut, let's go. I'll just go yeah. for the win. You got nothing to lose, so, right? So Yeah, so it was like the... It was a, I think it was a Tuesday. We so we actually we were one of the code grand prize winners of that competition. And what? that same night is the night that we got uh, notified that we had an interview for YC. And so then we spent <laughs> I think like forty eight hours to prepare for a YC interview. They were scrambling. Are you kidding me? Oh and then waiting up all night to uh, and then we got the call from uh, from the YC partner. Okay, so like within walk me through. That was a blur. Yeah, you were supposed to do. The window was like, okay, things are getting real. People believe in our idea, and we have the resources to actually like bring this to life. Yeah, and one thing we did a lot of interviews from both employers and employees, and that's really, I mean, the awards are great, right? But then at the end of the day, what gave us conviction was speaking to employees, employers, Filipinos, regulators, realizing that this problem that we know of is a like economy-wide problem um, yeah. was really encouraging. I mean, ideas can change. Um, a lot of people in YC are pre-product market fit, but like that was really a yeah, problem was real. You know that you really identified a problem because I now understand because it's re- really rare that people get this much support and conviction at idea phase, but you've done this before in your previous hustles that you know how to identify the real pain points quantify them and really explain them that right down to the T, right? And then show it. Now, the, the question is getting funding, obviously. Hindsight being 2020, you got into YC, right? But walk me through that experience of YC because I know the standard. Once you get in, people think that getting in is the hardest part. I think talking to so many people have been there before. Getting in is the easy part. Hustling to that five to seven, I don't know what's the standard that they told you of the week on week growth that they want is the hardest thing. And mm-hmm. pressure is on pressure on pressure. Walk me through that journey over the weeks that you guys were in YC and what did you guys build? Because at the end of the day, it's team time traction. You had team time traction, something you had to work on. What was that like? Yeah, I think there's two sets of challenges that we faced. And um, one is like more maybe internal thinking about like a founder side and then the second is actually yeah to your point like getting traction launching and really making progress i think on the on the first set i think for for kimiel and me we are we're first time founders from a from a like a venture-backed company sense and we were yeah we were surprised to get in and we realized that we were in the very very small minority of female founders and i think there are very very few and you know one of our batchmates here in the philippines maddie's was is I think the only like all women founder team that yep. we, we know of. And so I remember being like logging into Zoom and you have windows and windows of male founders. I think that was, I know that's like a systemic challenge or that's something I think as a female founder, that's something that we have to overcome and you have to like step up to not be, <laughs> to, to recognize that you're in the minority, but not let that, not let that stop you from still going after what you want. Right. So that's, I think that's a lot of like the internal a challenge of processing that 
in this very intense pressure cooker environment of YC where you have these week on week goals. I think for, for us, it was really defining how to focus on a week to week basis. Mm-hmm. So in, at the stage that we're, we were at, it's a lot with insurance, there are high barriers to entry. And so we were solving for what were the biggest risks for our company. Uh, and it wasn't necessarily the, the revenue growth and it was really all the complexities of insurance, right? Like the yeah. regulatory, the licensing, the the underwriting, and, and so forth. And what were those, those metrics you were chasing? Because at the end of the day, you can't be saying week-on-week growth without pegging it onto a certain metric. Or again, if you hit a wall, what were the pivots that you guys had to do in order to chase the right metric? Yeah, metrics-wise, so we weren't actually operational yet that time. So it was a lot of solving the regulatory aspect, creating a network of providers. So now we have close to 2,000 clinics and hospitals. What? Are you kidding me? So it was like building the blocks and being able to like make sure that when we launch, every single patient is given the proper care that they need. Obviously, this problem is systemic. So we're trying to solve things like one at a time. Mm -hmm. And the partners have been very supportive actually one of our partners is the ceo of yc michael siebel amazing i was just like oh my god <laughs> but then he's he I gives think a lot of tough love. Tough love. <laughs> dude uh, he, he talks about in the in, in yc school I, I watch his videos all the time yeah oh my god <laughs> i'm fanboy i'm getting starstruck i haven't gotten a chance to freaking talk about him but but on the point about like, metrics michael was the one who actually advised us around you know really Focusing, it was really around like learning how to focus on what is the right goal for yep. your startup at that time. And for some companies, yes, it might be revenue, month-on-month growth targets. But then for us, it's, it was around what will be the thing that would de-risk high the most. And right. actually shifting from like, a, oh, it's we're actually the, our target shouldn't be a month-on-month metric. And actually, it's it's around the, the other hard rocks we need to solve for first and yep. making sure that we are making the progress that we want to on a weekly basis. And if we're not... Being taking a hard look and a hard assessment on why, and then trying to iterate and improve the next right. week. Now, what were those hardest stumbling blocks that you had to overcome? Because again, you're not going to get it right. And startups are designed for you to iterate and navigate your way. It's like piecing through a puzzle and you don't even know how the end goal of the puzzle looks like, right? It's piece by piece. There's going to be a lot of pivots that you're going to have to do. There's going to be a lot of days where like, what the hell did we just do? Where are we now? What were those hardest ones that you remember and how did you overcome them? I think the first one was getting our first customer. (laughs) There you go. So after you build all the pieces, tested um, your product out, like getting your first paying customer was interesting <laughs> it's like who you <laughs> um, especially with yep. healthcare it's it's really about we're really our pitch is really around trust and in yep. healthcare it's all about like it's a promise that you will deliver and especially i think that's one of the challenges is being a startup not having necessarily the reputation of the brand that uh, a lot of existing insurers yeah. have like how can we demonstrate that we are credible and that we will actually deliver a better experience for uh for their employees yeah. and, and that was really hard and learning how to say it in a way that resonates like we had the you know we built the product we knew the research we knew um what things we we they wanted but mm-hmm. saying in a way that actually uh resonates with the key decision makers yeah and i think we're very deliberate about balancing growth and uh, making sure the product mm-hmm. is 
sticky and it really solves um, the problem. So we built a lot of additional product features um, mm-hmm. before we took on our next uh, few customers. And mm-hmm. it's very encouraging to hear our customers say that um, it was a great bet. We, we're a data-driven company, so all, we always get feedback. Mm-hmm. So seeing the returns of that today um, is very encouraging. All right. A couple of questions before we take our last break. Michael Seibel is a main proponent of PGs do things that don't scale. Right. What were those things that did not scale that you, you have to do to get the, the ball rolling? Oh my God, so a lot. <laughs> we're still doing things that don't scale. <laughs> on, the, on the first customer point, we actually drove through a like, typhoon rainstorm to on site to the first customer. Where? Get them to sign near the airport. Near the airport. <laughs> oh my no God. <laughs> Yeah, it's just, I think we got lost on the way. We're like, no, we need to get to them because we wanted there's there's like this close to signing, and okay. we needed to just talk to the team to understand like what what was the thing that um, we needed to address to get them over the finish line. And I wouldn't wow. say we don't drive to all our customers now, but <laughs> especially not through a typhoon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, even like now, okay, we have our fancy onboarding and like approvals. Uh, that time, literally, we were like speaking to them like one by one and like getting Google Sheets for feedback. Right. Sometimes doing, yeah, doing the like approval, like simulating the patient experience that we want, but it was really like yeah. us doing it. I mean, now it's like automated, we, but. <laughs> yeah, we also do a lot of, uh, we do a lot of like mystery shopping testing of our providers. Mm. Yeah. Like yesterday we were, <laughs> yeah, I'll go to the hospitals and clinics and, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I have my own hive plan too. So I just bring okay. the See how undercover boss style. There you go. <laughs> we're just experiencing the pain points firsthand right. too, right? And yeah, at that time we were sleeping till sleeping at 5 a.m. in the morning because um, we were following like PSC time. Yeah. yeah. And we were sharing the same bed because we're bootstrapped. Wow. <laughs> and just we like spent a lot of time together. <laughs> but... oh. And that's true. And that's what it takes. And people always think that, oh my God, they made it to YC. Their, their, their life must be super, super nice now. Hell no. Right, you get here, you get yourself into probably one of the hardest things you'll ever have to do, and there's no guarantee of success, right? And that's what again, mad respect to you guys for such an amazing journey. But last question before we take our first break, it can't just be the two of you, right? If you're building tech, how who else did you have on the band or on the on the crew to make an amazing team? Because now from ideation to doing things that don't scale, you gotta get a couple more people to. To, to get in, especially when you get a little bit more funding coming from from YC. Yeah, so on the tech side, actually, I built the full product, uh, and I, I so I lead, I still lead the tech and the product and operations. Mm-hmm. Camille, you know, she does a lot of the business development and legal, legal finance, and finance, all the fun, all the others, all the, <laughs> all the fun, <laughs> uh, cleaning the office. Oh my god. <laughs> Um, getting us company snacks. We have people from um, backgrounds from the medical field, um, startup, SME, and like growth operations. I think one thing that ties everyone is key qualification is like passion for innovation in healthcare and what we're solving. 
um, yeah, we've gone through like a couple of folks who have like stellar experience, but if it's not, if the bottom line isn't there, it's going to be hard um, for the long run and culture fit. So yeah, very grateful for a team. But I, I want to understand, because again, you're right. They might have the skill set on paper, but how do you find that trait in them come interview and how do you qualify them when they get in like, all right, we got the right people on the boat? Because it's important, especially if you're building a team. And this is the hardest thing is your team will evolve over time. Sorry, I'm, I'm sounding like an old part here. You know, the rule of three and 10, I don't know if you've ever heard of that. When your team multiplies in multiples of threes and tens, everything breaks. And sometimes who's on the boat will have to change as well. That, oh, this guy was really amazing for us in 1 to 10, but at 10 to 30, not the right guy anymore. We're going to have to naturally have to either they'll find their way out and whatnot. And that can be painful. But from this very start, how did you find the right people to get on the boat? I think we're very transparent. Like when we ask like what their goals are for the next X years, what matters to them like in working with us and it becomes clear so if it's not a fit then it's not a fit but we're very very lucky to be surrounded not just by like the core team but you know other partners like all the folks who supported us in the beginning Mm -hmm. and even like yeah government there's a lot of like bright spots that are wanting to solve this problem how young is the team how what's the age range of the people with working with you right 20s to 30s. Mm, perfect. All right. So right in the not too old, not too young generation. <laughs> but it, it's a good, it's a blend of millennials and <laughs> Gen Z, old Gen Zs. There you go. All right. Now let's take our last break. And when we come back, let's read forward. I'm going to ask you some amazing questions. And of course, paint the picture of what Hype Health is going to do when you guys go full blast in changing this uh industry that is due for real disruption. But let's talk about that more after the break. Hey, Hustlers, it's time to talk business once again, and we're excited to share a bit more info about our sponsors, Sprout Solutions. And again, just like what I said at the start of the episode, you should check out Sprout's Payroll Starter as you grow your own startup. Because this bundle that they have is literally what you need to take your startup to the next level as you grow your employees. And this bundle is your key to freedom, including payroll outsourcing to experts, a subscription to timekeeping and attendance software, and government compliance services. Sprout's Payroll Starter has you covered for payroll, BIR, SSS, and taxes. All the stuff that no founder loves to do. So let Sprout handle the busy work and say goodbye to lines and tax payment stress. All this for as low as 5,000 pesos. Again, that's just 5,000 pesos all in for your payroll and HR needs. So visit sprout.eh payroll-starter-monthly-5k or again, just click the link in the description box of this episode to elevate your business management game. And again, big thank you to Sprout Solutions liberating your time for what truly matters. Hey Hustlers, wish there was an easy way to open a bank account and grow your money without the hassle of lengthy application process and income documents? Well, I got good news because today's sponsor, Uno Digital Bank, is here to help you achieve your financial goals. You can easily open an account with the Uno app in just five minutes and one valid ID. And as one of the six digital banks licensed by the Banco Central ng Filipinas, the company is committed to providing customers with simpler, better, and more accessible banking. 
Last year, Uno Bank was recognized by the Asia Banking and Finance Awards and bagged the title Open Banking Initiative of the Year due to the success of its partnership with Gcash, one of the Philippines' leading mobile wallet platforms. And with the Uno mobile app, you can access an hashtag UnoReady savings account and enjoy daily interest crediting. With their hashtag UnoEarn or hashtag UnoBoost time deposit accounts, you can enjoy a high interest rate of up to 6.5% per annum. Enjoy monthly payouts with hashtag UnoEarn and flexible tenors with hashtag UnoBoost. Other app features include pay bills, the Uno Virtual Debit MasterCard, life insurance, scan and pay with QRPH, and phones. And the one thing that I really love about Uno Digital Bank is they're open to collaborate with a lot of Filipino startups. I've had a chance to see the partnerships that they've had lined up with the startups that they have, and it's truly exciting to see how a digital bank like Uno can enable startups to unlock the power of fintech through digital banking. So if you're ready to elevate your banking experience, download the Uno mobile app today from the Google Play Store or App Store. Or if you want to collaborate with them, I'll be happy to give you an intro. Just shoot us an email at hello at huffleshare.com. Hey, hustlers, I hope you're having a great 2024 so far. As you know, a lot of startups had a very challenging 2023, and hopefully things are going to do better this year for a lot of us. Not just because it's the year of the dragon, but also because our sponsor, Dragon Pay, is here to help your startups process payments in the most efficient way. Established in 2010, Dragon Pay empowers businesses of all sizes to accept and disperse payments through secure and convenient channels, giving your customers the flexibility to choose the payment method that suits them best. With over 85 partner channels, 35,000 partner branches nationwide, including QRPH, e-wallets, crypto, buy now, pay later, and many more. They also process an astonishing 15 million transactions processed globally each month. Dragon Pay is your trusted choice for online payments. And here's something to show you how legit Dragon Pay is. Dragon Pay was named FinTech of the Year at last year's Philippine FinTech Festival in 2020. So let's make 2024 extra prosperous for you and your startup in this year of the Dragon. For more details, head on over to dragonpay.ph. That's dragonpay.ph. Trust the pioneer, trust Dragon Pay. And we're back in the break. We are still with Camille and Jawen, who then told us how they were able to hustle through YC. But now walk me through after YC. What was that like? So now you're off into the wild after demo day. Was it fundraising galore all of a sudden or is it like customer acquisition? Because that's something that's a little abstract and it's different from team to team. What was that like for you after uh, demo day? So we, yeah, we did a little bit of fundraising uh, after the, the YC batch, but we really then doubled down on product. And for us, I think securing that first set of customers and getting people to trust that we are providing health fund. I think we felt a large responsibility to not, to make sure we don't screw up. Like with healthcare, it's not, it's not like a, a game app where if something breaks, it's okay. You just uh, launch a new release for healthcare. We wanted to make sure that we got all the process from front to end really, really right. And new every little detail of that patient journey. And so we invested a lot of time in product development. And when I say product, it's not just the tech, but also understanding all the process right. that 
deficiencies and applying tech to then streamline it. No, I was going to say it's only like now that we're like, we can take um, a little more small, medium businesses and mm. excited to also like start growing the team. We've been very lean and uh, very excited now to take on our next batch of small, medium businesses that we can grow with and also uh, build a team to help us out. I'm I'm curious about one thing about uh, for Rajawan. So obviously you're now here. Are you are, are you guys back here or are you still are you back in the states? Yeah, we're sitting in Manila. Okay, cool. Because sometimes <laughs> I get confused. Like, hey, there's sunlight when nine nine p.m. Sometimes <laughs> in the East Coast, and like there's still there's still. But nothing all... changes because we sleep Manila ah, time. Ah, okay. Right. <laughs> all right. No, I I want to understand though. What was that like for you, Jawen, when you now saw the problem in person when you started to move here with Camille, mm-hmm. right? Because again. I'm pretty sure you've been here before, right? But moving in full time and having to acclimate yourself here, I mean, you really get to see this more frequently. How does that affect product development? Yeah, I think it's really key to get feedback with any kind of product development cycle. The uh, Any feedback is a gift. And meeting the customers or the patients, our stakeholders where they are is really, really critical for that. So actually, for instance, yesterday just came back from a day of field visits to different hospitals and doing mm-hmm. the mystery shopping that I was saying. Uh, but from, um, yeah, I think from like a livability or like transition perspective, I actually think Manila is very, feels very comfortable for me. And nice. it's similar to like other parts of Asia I've lived in. Um, I actually spent time living in uh, in Swaziland in Africa, which is much more rural than than Manila. So um, it's it's really great to be to be here. She's also learning new phrases. Oh, there you go. I just I told her Sipon earlier because I... <laughs> <laughs> give us a sample, Colin. Uh, like right. Havana hair. Oh, Havana wow. hair. <laughs> <laughs> the important phrases that matter. There you go. Or pare. <laughs> or astig do you know what astig means oh i haven't taught her that yet. it's cool <laughs> technically awesome there you go but i want to understand you guys were talking about feedback and this is where i see a lot of startups kind of mess it up i think sometimes when you ask for feedback and it's a little misleading and you're just you're leading people to a to a certain answer it doesn't really solve the problem for you. But from what you've learned, how do you get the right feedback that's going to be useful in your product development and iteration? A lot of what we do is very hypothesis driven. Because like, I'm building this feature because I think this will solve this problem for the patient. And so if they, if I see that the problem is still happening or they're not using the feature, then clearly there, there's something wrong in what I thought. And there's a, a gap between what is expected and um, what actually happened. And so first it be, is being very hypothesis driven. Then second is being creative about the ways that we are asking for feedback. We don't want people to get like survey uh, fatigue and you're always yep. out. What is your MPS score? Tell me your MPS score. <laughs> I mean, we do end that for MPS score. Yeah, go. we do ask for MPS as part of it, but you're varying the ways that we do ask for feedback. Like, you know, sometimes we'll actually go, you know, we do a coordination on annual physical exam. So we'll sometimes go to the clinic where the patient is. We're kind of trying to embed ourselves into what they're doing so that they're not doing a lot of extra effort. Like you want to make it really easy for people to provide feedback. And I think asking open-ended and non-leading questions is quite important. Sometimes you assume your customer thinks yes. the same. Yes. Open-ended is like really helpful. Um, 
Yeah. And you, you get a lot of qualitative uh, answers on that one too. Wow. Because when you do survey, multiple choice, then you're leading into something and then you're not really able to, to do it. And of course, the, the biggest resource here is time. You have to spend a lot of time trying to get the right feedback in order for you to get quality feedback that will be useful for your iterations as well. But now I want to ask something about coping. And I don't really get to talk to the, a lot of founders this way, especially, you know, it's it, there is still stigma that people think that, oh, the startup life is all about, you know, the... The parties, the drinks in a rooftop bar and whatnot. But the flip side is this shit's hard as hell, right? It's really hard. But how do you guys cope uh, during those those uh, those downtimes? Unfortunately for us founders too, you can't. You don't have the luxury of staying down there for a long time. You have to be the one to bounce us back first because the the uh, the, the team follows your movements, right? How did you guys cope? With those downtimes where all hope can be can seem lost sometimes. I think if this is a tip for going to be founders, choosing a problem that you deeply care about is first and foremost, no matter what happens, even if like curveballs come your way, I think that's um, rock solid. And then second, I think is really surrounding yourself with people that can support you through the journey. So right. um, we're very lucky to have communities um, here in the Philippines, but also like other founders from Stanford, Harvard, YC, mm. um, that are building a lot of amazing things. And also a lot of founders in emerging markets that face similar problems that we have. Right. Yeah, I would just also add that, I think we mentioned like Camille and I spend a lot of time with each other. And so choosing your co-founder if you choose yes. to co-founder i think that and it's choosing the co-founder but also you have to put work, work effort into maintaining that relationship right? and like setting aside time to talk about the hard things the the difficult things and having an like, open communication channel and that's something that we've also learned through the process is how to right. communicate with each other and really listen to what we each need and figure out how best to support each other from not just like the tactical business responsibilities, but really like two or three levels deeper about, to your point, like the, the really hard days and yep. the, the hard uh, challenges. I guess personally also like taking a break, Sunday is the Sabbath for me. And yes. it's, it's easy to just hustle 365 days a year. It's not sustainable though. Um, but one, you know, there are things that are like not immediate, but are important, like family, for example, um, your friends, relationships, taking care of yourself mm -hmm. and being able to like reflect for me, like I go to church, even if it's online every Sunday, that's kind of like my vehicle to be able to like reflect and yeah, taking a pause also allows you to think of your problem differently. Sometimes you're so immersed in the one way and um, a lot of creative juices comes from like uprooting yourself in a different environment as well. So taking that rest that you need is like helpful. Right. You got to fill your cup. <laughs> yeah, I need to preach myself this too. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that, that's true. And again, um, Dalton Caldwell and Michael Seibel talks about this a lot that, you know, one of the mistakes a lot of founders in YC do is when they get office hours with them, they talk about the tactics and all that. But what they really like to look forward to is the human component of it, of the, how are you doing as a founder? How are you coping and all that stuff? Because those are the things that is very, very unique 
and hard to teach outside of what you do in videos. Because, you know, learning about default dev, default live fundraising, all that stuff, you can actually learn that on YouTube, right? And that's why I've learned. I've never been to YC, but I spend a lot of time watching their shit. But it's the human component of how to, how to cope because this shit's hard, right? And even sometimes when you have the right people and the right team who has so much chemistry with you that understand it, that you support you, it's still hard, right? And you have, that's why you need to surround yourself with people that will be with you through and through because they understand the hustle. And again, the best people that would understand that are also people who have been there, done that. Founders like us who are crazy enough <laughs> to take this on. But I, I want to dabble into a topic, guys, because I've, again, seen you lately hanging out the super women of the startup industry with Raya, who I just had here on the show several weeks ago. But talk to us about the, the lack of female founders in the ecosystem in the Philippines. What, what, what do you see now that, that have changed? Um, so I've seen that there's a massive change now, successful founders like you, like Mikey of Mad Eats, and a lot more like Kim, Kim Miao also, Ika, I think, uh, of Cloud Eats. What do you see now and how can we continue to help female founders to thrive in this ecosystem? Yeah, like one part is... Like really the mindset. I, I see a lot of female founders like say no before they even try. Um, mm. because like pattern matching is real. Like you look at who are the successful people, you look at one generation above you, what how many female founders there are, and it can be discouraging. <laughs> yep. But seeing a role model and like a number of those at that, I think Philippines is still at an early stage, um, really helps. So to the extent that like female founders can mentor others or like just share their story, I think that's very helpful. And then I think in the workplace, I think there are more tactical things. I remember in yeah. HS, there was um, I responded who would talk about how to empower females. You know, like being a mom is real, even if you say 50-50, we have a lot of friends who are doing egg freezing. We've been toying around that I <laughs> you know, like with like benefits as well, but still like having the workplace be like accommodating for females and allowing females to take risks when historically generations before us haven't is very important. And I think it's generational, right? Like yeah. my, my great-grandmother was the first one in her generation to have even an education. Her feet were still bound so that oh, she's at home. Yeah. And like the next generation was able to improve on that. Like, I hope I was able to build on that as well. And yeah, it's, I feel like it's not yet perfect, but the extent that we can support each other, both male and female. Yeah. I was going to add to that. It's, I think, I think there's a lot that, women and female founders can do to empower and support each other. So like a SoGal group that Raya organizes is a really empowering group of community support, but it's not going to, like the system isn't going to change if it's only 50% of the population working to to change it, right? Like yeah. if we need allies and sponsors and supporters from male founders, like everyone in the ecosystem to be aware that yes, this is a problem and you're losing out on talent because of because there isn't enough funnel or people are dropping out of the process before they, or they're not even giving the opportunity. And this, you know, 
applies across the from the founder perspective, from the VC fundraising perspective. There's been a lot of studies around like unconscious bias, and mm. so I do think there it, it needs to be like an active effort. Um, and really appreciate you, Ron, bringing this up as a a topic and this podcast to so that the listeners can be aware of it and think about where the things you can do on a daily basis or in your role to to enable more gender equity absolutely and again we're we're we're, i've seen a massive shift and camille you're right it's generational like i literally it is a sausage party sometimes what the hell where why is this like this right but now i've seen more diversity and you know one of the capitalists of, of really supporting startups is Miss Eliza Gokongwei, who is a power, 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 power uh, angel, right? And again, very, very supportive of the women uh, empowerment and you know women founder movement in here. So it's getting there. And I think if uh, among in our region, I think we're probably one of the most primed countries to make that that shift quicker because the cultural boundaries are not as repressive as the other cultures that we have here. All right, last question before we now talk about Hive Health. Fundraising. Okay, here we go. The hardest part. How's that for you guys um, during YC and after YC? There are multiple schools of thoughts. And I think with all advice, um, take it with a grain of salt because mm-hmm. people come from different backgrounds. But yep. I think having strong partners for fundraising is really important. Um, those who it's kind of like the team um, criteria we had, um, those who buy in the like the vision of what you want to go for. Mm-hmm. YC obviously was like very helpful with that, but we have a lot of like angels who have supported us. And when we raised literally the next day, everything was closed because they've been supporting us. And wow. um, like, you know, like we've, it was a relationship, right? Um, they are part of the journey, definitely. And we're very early stage. A lot of things to learn still. Um, have you know having them have your back is important. That is amazing. All right, now let's talk about Hive Health, right? Products here. What what? Let's let's talk about it from a user perspective. What should people look out for? You said you've got two thousand suppliers now, but what have you guys built that are exciting uh, that people should look out for? Yeah, we actually have. Uh... So the 2,000 suppliers is uh, hospitals and clinics, but we have 20,000 doctors across various locations. Wow. So I think the way that you think about it is there's the core traditional HMO uh, benefits. So, you know, the full provider network, you know, we're on par with the the other established HMOs, uh, as well as the key, I think the, the essential benefits around outpatient, inpatient, emergency, uh, et cetera. Um, and then there's additionally a lot more exclusive high benefits that um, we've added. And I think about it from like the, the, the benefits perspective, as well as the ease of use. So on the benefits, I think we mentioned before, we're innovating on what to add in the plan. So things like mental health sessions, um, outpatient medicine, and we actually do our in-house video teleconsults that are unlimited for all our members. Nice. And that's across primary care, mental health, uh, as well as additional specialists that we're we're launching. Uh, and so those are on the benefit side. And then in terms of the actual ease of use, we've built a very, what we think is a very um, streamlined and transparent, easy to use platform where you know, members can, the idea is 
we are empowering our patients to take care of their own health, to mm. be proactive in taking preventive health measures. So we coordinate annual physical exams for everyone, and they have all their medical records in stored centrally in one single app that they can reference and use. And we also help coordinate their care journey. So you're not having to bounce around to you know, five different specialists. You can actually book a teleconsult with us. We do the intake and then we help you navigate the, the healthcare system. Yeah, I think there are probably some listeners here who've never used an HMO because it was not transparent. Um, one of yeah. our founders actually like said he has used four different HMOs, never used it because it would like he didn't know how to use it. And also like when he tried to use it, it was too difficult. Like the the basic HMO story is you line up in a hospital for at least an hour just to get a piece of paper. You go to your doctor and then after that, if your doctor tells you get a blood test or get something else, you go back that same line and then do that again. The whole day is gone. I literally just did that a couple of days ago. <laughs> so it's painful. Ouch. There you go. But yeah, like um, from the SME side, there's a lot of frictions as well. Onboarding, offboarding mm-hmm. takes time. Like when you call customer service, it's out of reach. And a lot of it is because of legacy systems um, that have been built through the years. We're very lucky to try to start from scratch. And that's the first thing that we tried to solve for. So now you could do um, online approvals. You go straight to your doctor. You go straight to your lab test. When you call the customer service or reach out to us, we're there. But then what we realized after that is how weak the primary care function here in the Philippines is. I mean, I'm guilty of this growing up. If we have four different symptoms, we go to four different specialists. And yep. um, we don't get care until like something is like really there. So what we tried to do was build this like in-house uh, teleconsult that like really knows the whole picture of your healthcare, so that you know your employees could go directly without even getting a pre-approval, and we're able to invest heavily in primary care triage preventive care, so that we avoid a lot of the longer-term illnesses um, that usually happens when you don't invest in primary care. That is so amazing. Again, thank you very much, Jawen and Camille. But before I let you go, what do where do people go? And uh, if they want to work with you, if they want to buy or if they want to use this as their primary HMO now, they're sold like me. Where do they go and how do they reach out to you? Yeah, so our website is ourhivehealth.com so that's O-U-R and then hivehealth.com um, we are actually going to post some like LinkedIn posts for potential hires and oh. we haven't um, published that yet but um, watch out for that and if you're interested you're an SME curious we do even at a minimum of like three employees um, wow. if you're not yet regularized or contractual you could email let's chat at ourhivehealth.com. There you go. Again, thank you very much, Jawen and Camille. But before I let you go, follow us on whatever podcast app you're listening to, whether it's Apple, Apple or Spotify or any podcast app. And if you see a five-star rating, give us a five-star. Makes us uh, incentivized to keep doing amazing interviews like this. But also, if they did some say some jargon, don't worry, it's going to be in the show notes on hustleshare.com. And lastly, if you want to be part of our community, it's going to be this hustleshare community on Facebook. Again, Jawen and Camille, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Ron. Awesome. Thanks so much, Ron. It's been fun. (laughs) All right. And I'll see you guys in the next episode. Peace.